Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. I'm a clinical psychologist and medium, and here we explore life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. Today is an interview that I have been waiting to do for quite some time and had to wait for the book to come out. So I am so excited to have Dr. Bruce Grayson on the show today. Dr. Grayson is Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences at UVA School of Medicine. He served on the medical school faculty at the Universities of Michigan, my alma mater, Connecticut, and Virginia. He was the co-founder and president of the International Association for Near-Death Studies. Many of you might have heard me refer to this as IANS, and editor of the Near-Death and editor of the Journal of Near-Death Studies. His award-winning research has led him to become a distinguished life fellow of the American Psychiatric Association and to be invited by the Dalai Lama to participate in a dialogue between Western scientists and Buddhist monks in India. And you are on my show today, me and the Dalai Lama. So welcome, Dr. Grayson. Thank you, Amy. I'm thrilled to be talking to you today. Hi, we made it to March. So now you have your March public service announcements. If you have not rated and reviewed the podcast yet, please do so. Also subscribe. You can do that wherever you get your podcasts, Instagram, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere. Also, my course is coming. It is going to begin April 19th. So that will be the first day of the course. If you are not signed up to my newsletter yet or have not put yourself on the wait list for the course, you will not hear much about it. If you are on my newsletter and wait list, you will hear a lot about it. So make sure you do that. Sign up at dramyrobbins.com. Also, please make sure you follow me on Instagram at Dr. Amy Robbins and stay tuned for another great month full of amazing podcast episodes. I feel like, I don't know if you guys feel this way, but the content keeps getting better. So hopefully you're enjoying it and here's to springtime. So we are here to talk about your new book, which is coming out March 3rd. Uh, March second, March second, yes. and and this will air March third. So, um, the book is called After, and it is it really does answer, I think, every question that anybody might have mm-hmm. about near death experiences. Well, it doesn't answer all of mine, but that's okay. <laughs> well, the questions that I had going in, it answered a lot of them. But can you start by telling us your journey to studying NDEs? Oh. Because like me, you are you are um, a researcher. I'm not a researcher, but a, you came at this through a medical lens. Right. So right. how did you kind of come into all of well, this? It, um, it took me by surprise, actually. I, I grew up in a, in a scientific household. Um, my father was a, was a scientist, and the world we lived in was, you know, what you see is what you get. It was all the physical world. There was never any talk in my family about anything spiritual or non-physical. It's not that we were anti-religious or anti-spiritual. It just, it just never came up. Um, so I went through college and medical school with that materialistic mindset that the only thing that exists is a material world. And then uh, in my internship year, just a couple of months out of medical school, 
I was called to the emergency room to evaluate a patient. And when I went to see her, she was totally unconscious, presumably from an overdose. So I couldn't really talk with her, uh, but her roommate had brought her in and was waiting down the hall in another room to speak with me. So I went down the hall, maybe 50 yards to talk to that roommate. And we talked for about 20, 30 minutes about what had been going on with the patients in the patient's life. Um, and then I thanked her for coming in and went back to see the patient again, and she was still unconscious. I ascertained then that she was gonna be admitted to the intensive care unit because her heartbeat was still irregular. And I arranged to come and see her in the morning. When I came the next morning, uh, she was awake, but still very, very drowsy. Um, I had to shake her to get her attention and uh, called her name and she opened one eye and I introduced myself and she said, I know who you are. I remember you from last night. Well, that kind of threw me because she was out cold the night before. So I, I paused a minute and they said, you mean the nurses told you I came to see you last night? And she said, no, I saw you. That really stumped me because I, I couldn't imagine how that could be. So I said, well, gee, I'm surprised because I thought, I thought you were unconscious when I saw you last night. And then she opened her both eyes for the first time and said, not in my room. I saw you talking to my roommate down the hall. But <laughs> I didn't know what to make of that. You know, I, right. the only way that could possibly be is if she had left her body and that made no sense to me at all. As far as I could tell, I was my body. And here she's telling me that she left her body and came down the hall to, to see me. So um, I thought, well, maybe this isn't the first time she's been in the ER. She guessed where I might be. I was talking to her roommate. She saw my skepticism and then wanted to tell me about the conversation I had with her roommate, making no mistakes. And she talked about how I had a stain on my tie that no one knew except the roommate. And she talked about moving the fan over because it was a hot night, um, described everything in great detail. And I just could not understand how that could be. I was really flustered. Here I was just a couple months out of medical school trying to be a professional and she just totally blew my mind. I didn't have time to think about it then. I was doing a job. So I kind of pushed it out of my mind for a while. I didn't dare tell any of my colleagues about this. Mm -hmm. I would certainly think I was crazy. And I pushed it out of my mind for, for a few years um, until I met Raymond Moody, uh, who was also at the University of Virginia at the time. And at that time, he wrote a book called Life After Life, in which he gave this phenomenon, a name, the near-death experience, and describe what it was like. And in talking with him, I realized this sounds like what my patient had talked to me about, you know, a few years earlier. Now, I don't know whether she had other features of the near-death experience besides just leaving her body because I didn't know then to ask her about it. But once I read Moody's book, I realized this was not a one-time thing. There, there are many, many people who have these experiences. Being a scientist, I had to study this. You know, it's something we couldn't understand. Therefore, you go towards it. Mm -hmm. And and your career sort of took you to the University of Michigan, where you were studying this for a while, and then they basically gave you a choice <laughs> to. I, I'm, I'm, I was like angry reading that because I was like, I could have learned under him. Like if, there, if this was something back then, 
that I had even known about her that was on my radar it would have been fascinating. And I laughed also because as a, as a psych undergrad major there, one of the things they taught you, you describe is how they said, you know, it's not real research because, you know, you can't, you can't control for certain things. And I sort of chuckled to myself thinking, oh, but the research that they conduct where they, you know, you can only graduate, you can only get credit for your, you know, intro psych class by signing up to do four research experiments is considered real research. Like, how is that possible? So you journeyed to Michigan, they asked you to kind of go make a choice, and you did. Right. They said I could give up that nonsense and talk and study real, real science, or I could leave. I thought about it seriously, because I, I enjoyed my work. Otherwise, I loved seeing patients. I love teaching medical students, but I had to decide whether it was worth training my back on, on near-death experiences, which was kind of a hobby for me at that time. I wasn't getting paid to do that. I was getting paid to see patients and, and teach medical students, but it felt intellectually dishonest to pretend these things weren't happening. Mm. They clearly were. And more importantly to me as a psychiatrist, they profoundly affected the patients I saw who had them. And I couldn't pretend it wasn't happening. Mm-hmm. So one, I want to sort of get into some of the meat of what you talk about in your book. And one of the things that you talk about is the way that near-death experiencers describe their experience of time. Mm. What, what do you think that shows us about, many of my listeners have heard many near-death experiencer right. studies, which is why I'm kind of delving, delving in a little deeper sure, here. Sure. What is that, what do you think that means about time and how we understand linear time? Well, I'm not sure because I don't understand it myself, but near-death experiencers usually say that time, their sense of time became distorted, that everything was going on at the same time. There was no sense of sequencing in the time. And yet when they tell you the NDE, the story, the near-death experience, they say this happened and then this happened. So clearly that it sounds like there was a sequence. But when I ask them about that, they say, well, I have to put it that way so you'll understand what I'm talking about. But it was happening all at once. And they usually say that in some way that the experience was timeless. And they mean different things by that. And I think that's because we don't have words to describe it. Some say that the realm they were in had no sense of time, that the sense of time is only relevant to our physical world here. And once you leave that behind, there's no sense of time. So they talk as if there is time in the physical world, but it's not in the other world. Others say, no, there's no time anywhere. You just imagine that to negotiate your way through the physical world. But what I learned in my near-death experience was that time is just in your imagination. It doesn't really exist. Well, and they're able to translate that back and forth, right? So there's something, I mean, how do you make sense of that? That, that, that they have this experience, right, that is timeless or not sequenced. Right. It's not happening in the brain, which we'll get to in a little bit. But yet when they come back into sort of a physical body, the way that they're making sense of it is through the logical lens of our brain. Right. This applies not just to the sense of time, but to almost everything that happens in a near-death experience. You know, when you ask someone what happened to them, the first thing they usually say is, well, there aren't any words to describe it. I, I can't really tell you about it. And of course, we say, that's great. Tell me all about it. You know. Mm -hmm. So 
we know that they are distorting this, the, the experience by putting it into words for us because words don't do it justice. So whether they're talking about the sense of time or the sense of being one with everything or seeing deceased loved ones or some type of godlike figure, we know they're using words just so they can describe them to us that don't really reflect what they experienced. Well, and that I interviewed Raymond a while back, and that was one of the main mm. features was the ineffability yes. of the experience, right? That's sort of one of the things you use to define it. Yes. That, that's common to many different kinds of spiritual or mystical experiences. Mm -hmm. It's just beyond time, beyond words, beyond words. Well, and I think one of the things that's interesting is my experience, which came, which was my aunt visiting me in um, what was a dream state. Right. Some people would say it was a dream. It was not. Is that it is as clear to me today as it was when it happened yes. almost 20 years yes. ago. And that's what's so remarkable to me about these experiences is the way that they then imprint in our own minds. Right. You know, I couldn't tell you a dream I had last night. <laughs> you know, it's like piecemealed together. It doesn't make sense. There's amalgams of things. But but I could tell you like verbatim what happened in, in these experiences. Right. That's one of the surprising things to me as a, as a, um, a brain scientist about these experiences that the memories don't seem to fade over time. We know that almost all of our memories get distorted or, or fade over the years. And I've talked to people who had the near-death experience many decades ago and say it's as vivid today as it was uh, when I first had it. And we've actually done research to, to, germ to verify this. I started doing this research in the, in the early 1980s and took down in quantitative methods everything they said about their near-death experience. I recently got, went back and looked up some of those people that I interviewed 20, 30, 40 years ago and had them describe for me again the experience. And there was absolutely no difference. Many of those people who are skeptical of near-death experiences say that the stories get embellished over time. They become more pleasant, more blissful. And I found that was not at all the case. They were not changed in one bit in the 30, 40 years since they had first told them to me. And how do you then understand that? Like, how do you conceptually make sense of that? It's, it's hard to make sense if you believe that all our memories are brain-based phenomena. Because, as I said before, all our memories fade over time, usually. And particularly memories that occur in a near-death situation because they are emotional. And we know that strong emotion distorts memories. Mm -hmm. They're often, um, in the sense of a, in, the, in the context of a traumatic situation, and we know that traumatic memories are more likely to be changed. They often happen when you're taking some type of drugs or being given drugs for your medical condition. We know those things affect your memory. So there are lots of reasons to suspect that memories can't possibly be consistent over the years of an event that happens in these circumstances, and yet it does. So somehow these memories are immune to changes in the way the brain processes them. They must be somehow housed outside of the brain. Mm. So let's get in a little bit to the mind-brain situation here. So you, I thought you gave a great metaphor in the book about the, the cell phone mm. and, and kind of separating that. So could you speak a little bit to what you talked about there and then kind of give us some idea of 
where the mind would reside <laughs> if it is separate from the brain. Right, right. <laughs> well, that's that's a real dilemma. Um, you know, throughout the centuries, people have been struggling with mind and the brain. The mind being that part of you that thinks and feels and has urges and wishes and makes decisions, and the brain being you know, this three pound bottle, bottle, bottle of jelly that's in your skull. And obviously there's some connection because when you get intoxicated or hit on the head, your thinking is usually affected. And yet there are extreme circumstances like near-death experiences in which the brain seems to be shut down and yet the mind keeps going. And in fact, near-death experiences will tell you that their minds were going faster and clearer than ever once they were, quote, free of the brain. And I've got several great anecdotes from patients who say, once I realized that I was no longer in my brain, I experienced things I could never have experienced before. And I have a few that also said, when I was in that other realm, I could understand everything perfectly clearly. But now that I'm back in my brain, I can't make sense of it anymore. It's as if the brain somehow filters and distorts these mental activities going on. And here's where the cell phone analogy comes in. If you were to call me on your cell phone, on my cell phone, I would hear your voice on the cell phone. And yet, if my battery goes dead, I can no longer hear your voice. But it doesn't mean your voice has stopped. You're still there. You're still talking. I just can't make use of it. Mm -hmm. And many people have said that the brain is like a receiver or transmitter of the mind, that it receives mental images, thoughts, feelings, and so forth from the mind somewhere else, the way a cell phone receives radio transmissions. And the brain translates these into electrical chemical signals that the body can use. And this goes back to Hippocrates 2000 years ago, who wrote that the brain is the messenger or the interpreter of the mind. And throughout the centuries, people have used different models based on their current technology uh, to describe this. Um, people have called it a filter, a reducing valve. Um, people nowadays talk about the brain being the hardware and the mind being the software. But they're all analogies. None of them quite explain what's going on. But it seems clear that there are times when the brain seems to be offline or severely impaired. And the I'm sorry, the brain is offline or severely impaired and the mind is functioning better than ever. And this occurs not just in near-death experiences. There are other examples mm -hmm. as well. For example, there's something called terminal lucidity. Mm -hmm. In people who have end-stage dementia or other irreversible neurological diseases, who have ceased to identify family or communicate for years, and then in the moments or sometimes days before they die, they suddenly become perfectly lucid again and they can carry on coherent conversations and recognize family and we have no explanations for that. We've also been doing some neuroimaging research in the past couple of decades with people who have psychedelic drug trips and we find that those who have the more elaborate, almost mystical drug trips tend to have much reduced brain function while they're having those. We used to think that these drug trips were caused by the brain being stimulated by the drugs to produce hallucinations. Mm -hmm. And the data show just the opposite, that these drugs 
shut down those areas of the brain so that the brain doesn't get in the way of the mind anymore. Whoa. Okay. A lot. To, it's a lot to take in. What do you What do you think that then tells us about the mind surviving death? And then how do you separate mind from consciousness? I guess, or how do you define consciousness? And is mind consciousness? And yeah, well, I'll let I'll let you go from well, there. Yeah, we we get into semantic uh, problems here with what is mind, what is consciousness, what is soul or spirit. And different people have different definitions. Um, and I don't know how to make these distinctions. You know, I'm unfortunately limited by my brain. Uh, I'm kind of a, a hardcore um, empiricist. So I, I go with the data. Um, I should say, by the way, that the idea that the mind filters out, I'm sorry, the idea that the brain filters out the mind is not all that surprising because all our senses do that our eyes not only take in vision, but they also filter out those wavelengths that are not relevant to our survival. We don't hear things that dogs and cats hear because they're not relevant to us. Right, but we don't say they're not here, they don't exist right, because right, we're not right. hearing them. But the function of the brain in those cases is to eliminate the, re the irrelevant things so you can focus on surviving in the physical world. And it makes sense that the things you see in near-death experiences deities, deceased loved ones, and so forth, are not relevant to getting food tomorrow, finding a mate, finding shelter. So the brain just filters those out and just lets in those perceptions relevant to survival in the physical world. Well, and that makes sense why some people, if their brains aren't filtering that out, would have experiences yes. all the time where they're con right. connecting with loved ones right. and and that you can train your brain in some ways to possibly do that. Right. And it seems that once the filter has been pierced, as in a near-death experience, it never quite closes up the way it was before. It's as if once the door is opened, it can't be completely closed anymore. Mm -hmm. And many people who have had near-death experiences go on to have other unusual experiences for decades afterwards. Mm-hmm. Like spiritually, tra right. other spiritually right. transformative experiences, right? Um, okay, so how, how on the subject of, like with NDEs, some people who are more materialists would say, well, it's just DMT or some some chemical that's that's released at the end of death, right? That's causing these experiences, right? Like there there are a lot of scientists who say this is absolutely not possible. It's not right, true. Right. It's nonsense. Well, just because it's impossible doesn't mean it's not true. Um, there are a lot of things that we can't explain. Impossible means we don't know the explanation for it. Mm -hmm. But we can observe them and see they actually obviously do happen. Um, we don't need to explain it in order to, to realize that it's true. There are a lot of things we don't understand. We don't understand how aspirin works, but we know that it does, so we use it. And in the same way, we can't explain scientifically, how near-death experiences happen. But we can uh, establish that they do happen and they have profound effects on people's lives. And this is one of the reasons I like working with physicians. Um, they don't get hung up on whether they can understand something or not. What they want to know is, can I use this? Is it helpful for me to know about it to help my patients? And if you can show them how it's important to their patients, then they want to learn about it. 
So you, this quote I pulled from the book, which is Western, I loved it. Western scientists seem to seek understanding oh. about how the world works in order to change and control the natural world. That is the goal of most scientists, to gain mastery over our environment. Buddhists, on the other hand, seek understanding about how the world works in order to live more harmoniously with it. In other words, the goal of Buddhism is to coexist with nature in order to reduce our suffering. And you said this quote really challenged your it scientific did. self. Can you can you talk a little bit sure, about that? Sure. This this was struck me about something the Dalai Lama said to me. Uh, gosh, it was uh, ten years ago now at that conference in India, and we were talking about the similarities between Western science and Buddhist uh, traditions. And he was telling me that they're both rooted in empirical investigation. And both are supposed to change their beliefs if the evidence contradicts it. And he said that's, that's certainly true of the Buddhist traditions he's familiar with, and it's supposed to be true of Western medicine also. You develop hypotheses or tenets of your faith and see if, they're, if, they're, if they pan out with the empirical evidence. If they don't, you change your thoughts. But he said, the reason for doing these investigations differs in the West and in the East. And he said that Western scientists try to understand our relationship to nature in order to control it. Whereas the Easterners, the Buddhists do that, they try to understand it in order to coexist with it. And this is not by any means unique to, to Buddhists. Um, you know, Native American cultures say the same type of thing, that we are part of nature, um, not in opposition to it. And the way mm -hmm. to get along with nature is to understand it and learn how to live with it, not try to control it. This affected me because although I had kind of heard these concepts before, it wasn't really connected to my research that I was doing, my scientific research. And most of my research was geared towards trying to understand things so we could use it and manipulate it. And he made me think about this. And I wondered, like, why am I doing research? Is it to control things or to help people? And the bottom line for the Buddhists was trying to help people, trying to relieve suffering. And that's basically what medicine's all about, is trying to help people mm -hmm. and relieve suffering. So why are we trying to control things if that's not the way to do it? Now, certainly, sometimes you do need to control things in order to relieve suffering. We need to get control over this coronavirus in order to relieve the pandemic. But the control doesn't have to take precedence over the relief of pain and suffering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's why it seems so... Um, difficult to map, wrap your mind around why people wouldn't want to really open this up. I mean, I know that the conversation has probably come a long way since when you first yep. started yep. this work, but that there's still such uh, a resistance to it because I believe so much suffering and Yalom, the um, therapist talks about like, if you never address death anxiety in therapy, then it's not really right. a good treatment um, that, that, so much of our suffering comes from this fear of death yes. and so much of how we live or don't live our lives come from it. And so if you can offer people this perspective and really help them to, to 
wrap their minds around it and embrace it, it really can change how you live. That's right. That's right. As I said before, these near-death experiences have profound effects on people's attitudes, beliefs, and values for, for the rest of their lives. But the most profound change that they report universally is that they are no longer afraid of death after a near-death experience. No matter what the experience was like, they come back saying, I'm no longer afraid of that. And they find paradoxically that if they're no longer afraid of dying, they're also not afraid of living to the fullest. They're not afraid of mm -hmm. taking risks and trying new things because there's nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. Death is nothing that's something that's pleasant and not the end of our existence. Then you're not going to lose something when you die. So there's nothing to be lost by taking chances and living life more fully. So we find that people who've had these experiences tend to dive right in and take advantage of everything available to them and enjoy life a lot more. Well, and you even found this with, um, with individuals who had um, attempted suicide. Yes. yes. This was concerning to me when I first started doing this research because one of the things that stops many people from killing themselves when they feel suicidal is fear of what's going to happen. Either fear of totally being annihilated or fear of being punished after they die. And near-death experiences eliminate that fear of death. So as a psychiatrist, I was thinking, isn't this going to make people more suicidal? Mm -hmm. So I did the research to answer the question. And I found, and other people have also in similar studies, that the near-death experience makes people much less suicidal. And I've studied that, Dr. Ken Ring at the University of Connecticut studied that, several other people have as well. And they've all found consistently that people become less suicidal after a near-death experience. Now, when I ask near-death experiences why that is, they tend to give me different answers. But what they mostly boil down to is that they no longer think of themselves as this isolated bag of skin with these set of problems but they see themselves as part of something much greater than themselves. And in that context, my personal problems don't mean the same thing. They're not something mm -hmm. to be escaped from, but something to be dealt with and learned from. They see a meaning and a purpose in everything in life that they didn't see before, including a meaning and purpose in their own suffering. And so they come back wanting to deal with it and not try to escape it by committing suicide. I bet that makes for some really deep therapy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what? So let's talk about the life review, because mm -hmm. this is the concept I think that is just, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about what you found with the life review. And also, my question is, what, what do you think that means about us being kind of one global consciousness or one mind in terms of how people are experiencing their life review? Well, about a third of people who have a near-death experience talk about a life review. And they usually say it in terms of my whole life flashed before my eyes or I've reviewed my whole life. Uh, they describe it in different ways. Some say it went chronologically from birth to now. Some say it went in the other direction. Some say, I saw it all at once. And again, we run into that problem of how do you put into words something that doesn't have a time sequence to it? But they do it anyway. What they say is that they remember every detail of every event in their lives. 
as if they could slow it down and watch it in slow motion and see each frame of the film. But what's more surprising is that some people describe seeing things in their life review, not only from their perspective, but from the perspective of other people in the event. Let me give you an example of this. Tom Sawyer was a 19-year-old, kind of a rough guy, uh, driving his hot rod down the street, and somebody ran out in front of his truck, someone who was obviously intoxicated, and ran out in front of his pickup. Uh, Tom stopped and rolled down his window and yelled at the guy. And the guy reached his hand in the window and slapped Tom across the face. Well, being a hot-headed 19-year-old, Tom jumped out of the car and started beating the guy. He hit him, as he later told me, 32 times, left him bloody and, and a bruise on the, on the sidewalk, got in his truck and drove away. In his life review, he experienced all those feelings in himself, the flush of embarrassment, of anger, the rage, and he also experienced it from the perspective of his victim, seeing Tom, his face, red, coming out of the truck, feeling every one of those 32 blows against his chest and his face and his body, feeling his teeth being pushed into his, into his lips, feeling the bloody nose, and he experienced everything from the perspective of himself, Tom, and the perspective of his victim. So how do we explain that? I've heard many other examples of this where people have experienced things from the perspective of other people who were involved. And sometimes I've been able to interview those other people and confirm, yes, it's exactly the way it happened. It appears that when you're in this near-death experience, in this other mindset, this other world, you are not limited to what's going on in your brain, in your body but you have access to what's going on in other minds as well. Whether that means we're all part of the same one mind, that's one way to understand it. But we're talking about metaphors here. Are we all one mind? Are we all parts of the same mind? Um, many near-death experiences say it's like being a drop of water in the ocean. You're not the whole ocean, but you're the same as everything else in the ocean. You're all part of the same thing. Right. The drop of water doesn't see itself as separate right. from the ocean, whereas we all see ourselves as so separate. Whoa. This is like mind-blowing <laughs> stuff. I just, it, it's, it's to, to wrap your mind around it, I guess, is so, I mean, I've been doing interviews for a while now, a couple of years, and it's, I think it's getting a little bit less conceptually challenging for me, but it's still like so unbelievable to think that when we die, it, I mean, it's due unto others, right? Like you are going to experience yep. that. And, and what about, did you find in your research anywhere where people didn't even necessarily have the, the experience of, of like me hurting you or me helping you, but just imagined a thought about that. Or did anybody report on that? Like, oh, I remember like thinking that I did not like this person or, you know, having really hostile, angry feelings, it, but never yes, expressing them. Yes, I them. have heard uh, stories like that. Yeah. And so they still 
knew what it felt yeah. like for that person. Right. So what does that say about energy yeah. then? I yeah. mean, yeah, we're not limited to what the physical body does. We have interactions that are going beyond the body. You know, when, when you hate someone, you're angry at someone or love someone, they can tell that and that affects them, whether you say it or act it out or not. Whoa. Okay. A few more questions. So you, you also found some people, not all NDEs were positive right. in your research. Right. And I think this is really important for people to hear. Can you describe what some of the um, people who experienced negative NDEs were and, and how they kind of came out of it and what their, what they took away from it, even if it wasn't yeah. this like blissful heavenly experience? Well, some of the early research like that of Raymond Moody did not find any unpleasant near-death experiences. All they found were the blissful ones. And it took us a while, um, at least a decade, to find that there really were some that weren't blissful experiences. But people are less willing to talk about those things. It's hard enough to talk about a blissful near-death experience. But if you have an unpleasant experience when you almost die or when you're pronounced dead, you usually start thinking, why did I have this? Why didn't I have a blissful experience? Is something wrong with me? Is it my fault that I had this bad experience? And they're less likely to share it when you ask them what happened. So sort of like, am I, was I like relegated to hell right. type of thing? Right. <clears throat> but we actually did do a, a study where we collected 50 people uh, who had unpleasant experiences and tried to analyze why they had these. And there were different types. There were a few, very few, that were prototypical hellish imagery, fire and brimstone and demons, but very few. And all of those were people who had been raised in a tradition that taught that either Catholicism or fundamentalist Protestantism, um, very few. There were a lot more that were a sense of just a black void with nothing. And they found themselves still a consciousness, but without a body and with nothing to see, nothing to hear, nothing to interact with, just complete void. And most Americans who I've talked to find this utterly terrifying, knowing that this is going to be their eternal fate, just drifting around with nothing to interact with forever. Interestingly, I've talked to a few Hindu uh, near-death experiences who have the same experience, but say, this was blissful, this was nirvana. I was mm. part of the, the black void. So it, there's a difference in how you approach uh, what you experience. Mm -hmm. Now, let me say that the largest group of unpleasant experiences phenomenologically look exactly like the pleasant ones. People will feel themselves going through a tunnel, seeing a brilliant light and so forth, and seeing their, their lives flash before them, but they experience it in a terrifying way. Instead of giving into it and being blissful with it, they fight against it and feel it, it's, it's being imposed on them. And they may feel that they're losing control, which is terrifying. Now, what we see is that some of these people, as they're fighting against it, eventually get exhausted and stop fighting. And as soon as they surrender to it, it becomes a blissful experience for them. So it appears that for those people, the unpleasant part of the near-death experience is the fighting, the resistance, the desire to stay in control when obviously you can't stay in control. 
And is there any correlation to their personality when they're in a body and that experience? Absolutely none. Huh. I've talked to uh, people on death row. Um, I've corresponded with people on death row who had blissful near-death experiences, had a heart attack in, in jail and had this blissful experience. And I've talked to people who led what seemed to be exemplary lives who had terrifying near-death experiences. And this shouldn't be surprising because we have examples of Catholic saints throughout the centuries, uh, St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross, who described a dark night of the soul when they had their, their near-death experiences. And many, many cultural traditions from all over the world talk about a hero's journey where you have to go through all sorts of suffering to finally reach enlightenment. So it's not surprising that the personality traits, traits do not correlate with whether you have a positive or a negative experience. Mm-hmm. What, um, what do you think NDEs tell us about evidence of our loved ones being able to contact us after death? Well, I think they certainly give us evidence that our minds are not limited to our bodies, to our brains, so that they function quite well, sometimes even better, where they're not attached to the brain. And if that is true in life, maybe it's true after the brain dies as well. And maybe we can continue on after death. That's certainly a possibility with the near-death experience. However, there are some near-death experiences which have more direct evidence of long-term survival. Some of the skeptics about near-death experience say, well, yeah, you're providing evidence that when your body dies, your brain doesn't die right away. Mm -hmm. Maybe it lasts for five minutes and then it fades. The way an odor may fade after the thing that caused the odor went away and the odor hangs around for a while. However, there are many people who have in their near-death experience an encounter with a deceased loved one. Now that's often said, well, that's just wishful thinking, your expectation and so forth. But there are some cases where the experiencer encountered someone who was deceased who was not known to be dead. And we have cases going back to ancient Greece and Rome of this and up to the present day. For example, one person I talked to back in the 70s, he, he was a 26-year-old uh, technical writer, and he had a severe pneumonia and was hospitalized in respiratory, repeated respiratory arrest. And a nurse who become very close with took off for the weekend. And then when she was gone, he had a near-death experience when he stopped breathing. And in his near-death experience, he encountered this nurse, Anita, and shocked, he said, what are you doing here? And she said, you need to go back. You can't stay here with me. Go back and tell my parents that I love them and I'm sorry I wrecked the red MGB. And then she went off into a garden. When he was resuscitated and could speak again, he told the first nurse that he saw about this encounter with his nurse, Anita, and she ran from the room crying. And he later learned that while she was away, this nurse was surprised for her 21st birthday by her parents with a red MGB and jumped in the car, took off, lost control of the car, crashed into a telephone pole and died instantly. Now there's no way he could have known or even expected that she was dead, let alone know how this happened. And yet he knew some of the details. And I've got many cases of this where people have described in detail things about a deceased person that was thought to be still alive 
And later they find out, no, the person died shortly before you had that near-death experience, which suggests that that person who died is still around in some form and able to interact. And in some cases, the person's been dead for quite a while and still seems to be able to interact with us. Well, and I think, too, there's stories. I can't remember if Eben Alexander's story was this, where he didn't know that he had had a sister. Yes, yes. And and she was there in his near-death experience. And then when he came back, he found that out. Right. He had been adopted uh, shortly after birth and didn't know that he had a, a full sister that from the other family that he'd never met. And she died about 10 years before his near-death experience in a car accident. And he said that he, he saw her in his near-death experience, didn't know who she was, and then later saw her picture in, her birth, in his birth family's household and uh, found out that was her sister, his sister. So my last question for today I finally gotten to the end. What does after mean? Well, it means a few different things. It refers to what happens after death. And this is what most people want to know about when they hear about near-death experience. They say, what does it tell me about what happens in the afterlife? And near-death experiences do suggest some things about that. I won't say they give us absolute proof, but they certainly make it plausible to believe that we continue after death. It also refers to what happens after you have a near-death experience. And this is what, for me, is the most important part of the the near-death experience, is how it changes your life after the NDE. It makes you more spiritual, less materialistic, more caring, uh, more, more compassionate with other people. And you don't change. It stays that way for the rest of your life. I'm hoping that it also refers to what people who read this book do after they've read it, how they change their lives. There is substantial evidence now that people who learn about near-death experiences also absorb some of these same changes. And I'm hoping that my book will do the same. Well, you and I have the same goal (laughs) for that one, for sure. So if people have not, if people haven't seen the book because it just came out, it is after. It is available now because this will come out after, after it beca- after it comes out. This will this will come out. Um, and where can people find more about you and your work, or uh, if, they, if they're interested? Well, they can find it on my website, which is www.brucegrayson.com. That's b-r-u-c-e-g-r-e-y-s-o-n.com. And there are links on the website to order the book uh, from different different sources. Well, thank you, Dr. Grayson, for this enlightening time today. It was just, I mean, I I do think you answer so many of the questions that people have about this. And you really, the way that you addressed it in the book, it's, it's just so tangible and digestible for people to understand. So I really appreciated that. I really recommend this book. It's one that I think will help people after they read it. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Wondering what comes next and what it all means? Head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you could take a minute to rate and review my podcast, I would really appreciate it. Stay tuned as we continue to explore life, death, and the space between.